Initializing now. You are listening to Intellectual Icebergs, December 7th, 2005, show number 6. Today's topics are a little-known cure and cardiology. For comments or questions, you can email us at comments at intellectualicebergs.org. And here's your host, Robert Rapplin. Hi there, and welcome back to Intellectual Icebergs. This is Robert Rapplin. The following segment was suggested to me by Stephen Sinclair, one of our listeners. He suggested that I look into something that his brother, Dr. David Sinclair, has been up to. Quite frankly, it's too good to be true. It's a cure for alcoholism that doesn't require detox, doesn't even require abstinence, has a very high success rate, and results in people who are actually cured of alcoholism, not merely alcoholics who have been taught how to cope with it. These people can actually go out and drink socially if they want to, but generally they don't want to. It's called the Sinclair Method, and it combines a drug named naltrexone in drinking to bring about something called extinction, which is the exact opposite of conditioning. Naltrexone actually blocks the chemicals that reward our neurons for drinking. Because of the too-good-to-be-true factor, I actually did a bunch of research into this. I compared the theory to what I know about neurochemistry. I dug up studies, I talked to my doctor, and I even looked into Dr. Sinclair's background. What I found is that the theory is sound, and the studies support it. It's obvious from the research done that it will work for some people, it will not work for all people, but it should work for most. Now, I'll be honest with you, and I'll lay out my bias. I want this to be true. If this is true, then it'll solve a problem that has plagued mankind since the discovery of alcohol. But nobody's making money off of it, and there's a lot of good science behind it. So if you are an alcoholic or you care about one, please listen in and judge for yourself. What follows is an interview with Dr. Sinclair. We're doing something unusual today. We're actually having a Skype conversation with an interviewee in Finland, Dr. David Sinclair. He's a senior researcher at the National Public Health Institute in Helsinki, Finland. Hello, David. Hi. Before we get into the details of this treatment, can you describe the physical mechanism of addiction? This is a case where the answer has changed tremendously in the 40 years I've been in the field. When I came in, we knew that addiction was caused by physiological dependence, by going into withdrawal. And you can see this in the movies where the guy is saying, I'm going into cold turkey, doc, you got to give me some. And you still see it in the language today. We call alcoholics alcohol-dependent individuals uh, because it was thought that the physical dependence was what caused it. In fact, the main treatment that was used then, uh, and even today, is to just put somebody in a hospital for three weeks or so and get rid of the physiological dependence. But it doesn't cure the addiction. Uh, One of the first things that we found was that actually makes it worse. Nowadays, the answer that almost everyone agrees to is that addictions are learned. The substances that we've become addicted to, like heroin or alcohol, use shortcuts that have developed in evolution to the process of learning. Let me take the case of alcohol. Originally, ours was an alcohol research center only. Each time that you drink alcohol, it causes endorphins to be released. Endorphins are the body's own chemicals that are shaped like heroin and other opiates. They float around the neurons like sort of local hormones. And whatever pathways, whatever neurons have just been used, get a little bit stronger. The synapses, the connections between the neurons are easier to use in the future. So what behaviors did you make just before drinking the alcohol? Well, going to the pub perhaps, lifting up the glass, ordering it. All of these things become a little bit stronger. And then you drink again, more endorphins are released and it becomes still stronger. Now there's a genetic component here. That's one of the reasons I came to Finland. The laboratory here was famous for developing by a special breeding, a line of rats that became addicted to alcohol easily. And it was shown that genetics, these particular rats, had a very active endorphin system. They got addicted easily to alcohol. Each time you drink, the pathways get bathed in endorphins and get a little bit stronger with the right type of genetics and the right experience learning day after day the pathways eventually become so strong that you cannot control them that's when society calls the person an alcoholic Mm-hmm. So how does your treatment work to prevent this or roll it back even? Well, there are two mechanisms in the nervous system for changing its own wiring. 
learning that we just described is one of them for making pathways get stronger. But we now know that there's as much going on in weakening of connections, sort of like a sculptor taking away things, as there is in strengthening. The mechanism by which uh, the brain does this is called extinction. The listeners may be familiar with Pavlov's dog, uh, where Pavlov uh, rang a bell and gave food, and the dogs learned to salivate whenever the bell was rung. And that was the learning part. Then he rang the bell, but didn't give the reinforcement, no food. Gradually, over days, the behavior was extinguished. It was taken away, it was made weaker, until the dogs no longer salivate. The trick in the treatment is to make the response of drinking, going to the pub, all these things, but not get the reinforcement. And that's where we use a medicine. We use a substance, uh, naltrexone, or one that's being developed in Finland, Malmothane, that block the opiate receptors. And let me describe it this way. Uh, when the endorphins are released, they fit into special receptors, sort of like a key going into a lock and they open it up and that causes the reinforcement. If you take naltrexone before drinking, then it sits inside of the receptor, sort of like putting the wrong key inside of a lock. And then endorphins just bounce off. In fact, heroin would bounce off. You wouldn't feel anything from taking heroin. So you've made the response of drinking, but you don't get the reinforcement because it's blocked by the naltrexone. What we first found in rat was that the drinking doesn't go down immediately, but the next day the alcohol drinking is a little bit lower, by the second day it's still lower, and by the fifth day the rats aren't interested at all. And then we tried it out uh, in human beings and got the same type of results there. The very gradually, takes longer in humans, over three months or longer, the drinking goes down, the craving goes down. Until, as you mentioned, eventually the people are back down to being social drinkers. But people actually have to drink in order for this effect to happen. Yes. Now, you don't use any detoxification. You start it while the people are still drinking. An alcoholic comes into the clinic. You have to do a liver test using naltrexone, but once that is okay, then you give him the naltrexone pills and say, take one of these an hour before drinking. You don't have to tell them not to drink, but instead they take the pill and go out and drink normally. You warn them not to drink too much, and oh, in a couple of weeks, they start finding that they're less and less interested for example, one of the clinical trials that was done in Miami, a patient there was saying that all he could think about before the treatment was Budweiser beer. That he'd wake up in the morning thinking about Budweiser, and throughout the day he's thinking about it, imagining peeling the labels off, etc. Lunch and drinking some, going off at afternoon and drinking, and in the evening finishing up a case of it. During the treatment, he started thinking about it less and less often. And by the time that three months was gone, he no longer was paying any attention to it. If the other guys were going out drinking, he would take an naltrexone pill. Actually, it was Nalmafen, but go out and drink with them. But he did not have to do it. He regained the control of the drinking. Well, okay, so how effective is this? I mean, is it a surefire guarantee? Does it have problems? It isn't perfect. When it's being used in the clinics where we have the, the best watching of the patients and good interaction with them, we find that there are some patients who drop out and there are some who don't take the medicine. But it's a rather small percentage because we're not asking them to do a lot. If you ask an alcoholic, don't drink, <laughs> that's very difficult. The definition of being an alcoholic is that you can't control the drinking. But if you ask them, okay, take a pill before drinking, that's much easier. So it's a high rate staying in, but there's some dropping out. And then there are a small fraction, uh, maybe less than 10%, who take the medicine, they say, and it doesn't work for them. But the all success rate in the clinics is 78%. This also has been checked in clinical trials. The first ones were at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, Yale University. Here in Finland, with the National Public Health Institute, where I work, we did a dual double-blind placebo-controlled trial in which we demonstrated that you have to use this medicine in a way that allows extinction to take place. You have to pair the medicine with the drinking. There is a tendency to use naltrexone as if it were antabuse, uh, the old medicine. And with antabuse, you didn't want them drinking any at all. So doctors tend to do it that way. Say, don't drink, and here's your pill. Well, we had one group that was given naltrexone that way. 
The other group was told, we want you to control your drinking, but take a pill before drinking. So it allowed extinction to take place. What we found was very nice results when extinction was possible, and they took the pill before drinking. But if they did it the other way, it actually tended to be worse than the placebo. And there was a significant difference between the two groups. Wow. This has been shown over and over again in over 50 trials now that you have to use it the right way. One of the jobs I'm trying to do in Finland and also in America is to get this message across to people. Hmm. So is it effective against other drugs like uh, narcotics or heroin? We're moving a little bit on to the edge of the science, but the very beginning studies were with opiates, with heroin. And this also demonstrated you had to use it the right way. The very first trial was a big one that was done by NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse. Back in 1978, a large group of heroin addicts, the doctors who set it up were not thinking of extinction, that you have to shoot up at the same time as taking naltrexone. Instead, they were thinking of a drug addiction as a rational behavior. And if you know you're not going to get any pleasure from it, you won't do it. And that was their idea. So they gave the patients a little tag card saying, you have been given naltrexone. Do not use any opiates. If you take a small amount of heroin or methadone, you will feel no pleasure. Don't bother doing it. If you take a large dose, you will die. And that's a straight out lie. But it was wow. meant to scare them so that they wouldn't use it. And what happened was, in the total results, naltrexone was no good whatsoever. There was not a single significant benefit of naltrexone over placebo. But when they looked closer, it was a small subgroup of patients. I think it was 17 in the placebo group and 18 in the naltrexone, or the other way around, that disobeyed the instructions. And they did the right thing. They took opiates, heroin, morphine, methadone, while they were on the naltrexone. And here they got significant results. Typically the ones on naltrexone would try it just a few times and then quit. Uh, they had significantly lowered craving at the end of the experiment, significantly lower urine positive for the opiates. And it was concluded in the paper published by NIDA, actually twice, that it works by extinction and you have to use the opiates at the same time. But if you look today, at the inserts that are included along with naltrexone, they say, you have been given naltrexone, do not use any opiates. If you take a small dose, you will feel no pleasure. If you take a large dose, you will die or go into a coma. They added the coma onto it, but it's, it's the same instructions that were shown that you have to disobey them 20 years ago. Hmm. We've lost a generation because of this, because it wasn't communicated properly. Recently, a Russian group at Pavlov Institute tried using naltrexone the way I was suggesting to, in which essentially you tell the patients, okay, you're not supposed to take heroin, but if you do take it, make sure you always take the naltrexone first. Mm -hmm. They got very nice results. It worked when you did it that way. There's been a clinical trial in Texas with cocaine and significant results there when it was done the same way as with alcohol. Cool. I suspect that it will work with amphetamines, but only animal experiments there. So far, the evidence that I've seen suggests it does not work for smoking. That smoking, you can extinguish it, but probably not with naltrexone. But uh, the story is still out. I, I'm sure there's other data that is waiting to come out, and I haven't seen yet. Okay. There is another whole side to this, though, and that is not only taking of drugs, but doing other things. Like, there have been clinical trials showing that it works for compulsive gambling, which is a type of addiction. Every time that you're gambling, you're releasing endorphins, the same as with alcohol. And very nice evidence there. So how Case about, studies, like, online gaming? Um, take your naltrexone before the online gaming, it should work. I mean, I don't see that being any different than going to a casino. As long as there is the same uh, thrill that is relief releasing endorphins, the treatment should work. As a matter of fact, they're trying to get FDA approval for Nalmefen for this right now. It's been approved, uh, naltrexone, for alcohol back in 1995. It hasn't been approved yet for gambling, but I think it's just a matter of time. Hmm. Uh, hair pulling, sexual disorders, kleptomania. There are case studies for all of these. It's a whole new form of medicine that should be available with this. Well, but then does it also curb positive habitual behaviors? Yeah. <laughs> and this is where you have to be a bit careful in using it. Uh, we've developed in treating alcoholism a method we call selective extinction. 
In a Wisconsin clinical trial, there was a report that the people had less interest in sweets. Well, that may not be a bad thing for people like me, <laughs> but for alcoholics, it's rather nice for them to have sweets that they can go back to. And in the Swedish clinical trial, they found the same thing, and also that it reduced libido or interest in sex, which you don't want to do. What you want to do is to remove drinking or whatever behavior has become addictive, but actually build up the other behaviors. What we do in the clinics is to have the patients, when they first start off, make a list of other behaviors that are enjoyable for them. Jogging, cuddling babies, sports, whatever. We tell them, when you're taking the naltrexone, don't do that. And since they're basically interested in drinking alcohol and we're not telling them they can't do that, this generally goes okay. After they've been in the treatment, it depends upon the individual, two weeks a month when they can control the drinking for a while, then you have a weekend off. You stop on Friday, you will need to wash the naltrexone out of the system. On Sunday, the patient, they're not taking naltrexone, they're not drinking alcohol, but they do these other behaviors, whichever ones they want. They have the spicy, peppery meal, chocolate, whatever. The patient's report is great. That uh, one thing I didn't mention is when you're taking naltrexone continually that the brain becomes super sensitive. The, the number of these opiate receptors increases. And now when the naltrexone is gone and they're free, they're sitting there like flowers ready to be filled. Patients report it's the greatest meal they've had in ages. When we did it in rats, the other behavior was drinking saccharin. And we actually push the saccharin drinking up while we extinguish the alcohol drinking. So. You want to do it this way, to selectively remove the behaviors that are a problem. Okay. I might mention a thing that just recently got into, very theoretical so far, but this was with eating disorders. And this is a case where you definitely have to use it with selective extinction because you don't want to get rid of eating altogether. You want to just get rid of specific things like an American eating peanut butter in Finland when the care package comes here. Okay, why is American eating peanut butter a bad thing? <laughs> well, it depends upon how gravitationally challenged one is. <laughs> ah. now, uh, many people find that there are specific foods that are the reason for their overeating. Or, I mean, if I get rid of mayonnaise, that'd be okay, and peanut butter. Um, <laughs> other people, it's particular time, like uh, watching television, or as one of my daughters suggested, a particular time of the month, if they get rid of the overeating at that time then there are people who need to not eat particular foods because of dietary problems in the case of someone who's bulimic uh, there are particular foods that trigger the bulimic behavior you don't want to get rid of all eating but you want to get rid of the eating of ice cream that triggers the bulimia so you need okay. to alternate back and forth between doing the behavior the bulimia with naltrexone or in this case better with naloxone and then when it's gone eating in the proper way Okay, so how does this method compare with traditional alcohol treatments? Our method is cheaper for one thing, but perhaps most important, it's more attractive to patients. One of the problems in treating alcoholism is that most people who need treatment don't come in. In Finland, it used to be we saw only about one out of 10 patients. So 78% success rate, but if you're putting this out of the nine out of 10 we never see, it hardly shows up. The main thing is if we could get more people coming in who actually need it. So why don't people come in for the traditional treatment? In Finland, I call the traditional way the, the D method because everything starts with D. The first thing, they have to detect that you're an alcoholic. You have to admit, you have to wear a scarlet letter A, I am an alcoholic. That's very difficult. Uh, well, it's like admitting that you're a bad person. Denial. Yeah, well, it, there is a moral issue that people have thought to this. It's really a disease, but still people see it as a moral issue. And it's very difficult to say, I'm an alcoholic. When we're doing it our way, it can be used for anyone who would like to have more control over their drinking, so you do not have to detect them. But let me get on with the D method. When you finally decide that you are an alcoholic and you want treatment, you call up the system and they give you a delay, maybe three months. And if you can hold on to your motivation that long, which is not that easy, then you, they put you into detox. Detoxification with alcohol is a very severe matter. 
It's worse than heroin detoxification. It can be fatal. Nowadays, most, at least humane hospitals, are doing it with medications. But the medications they're using are benzodiazepines and barbiturates, which are addicting. So you're giving people who have been proven to have a risk of becoming addicted medicines that are addictive. Once you get through the detox, then here in Finland, they have to detain you. You go to a hospital out in the countryside for about a month. Tell the boss, I'm going to be gone for a month's time. The job's still be waiting for me when I get back. Where are you going? Oh, it's an alcoholism treatment. Now, throughout the whole time, the only thing that everybody has been saying to you is, don't drink. But they haven't done anything to get rid of your craving. So the last thing you want to hear is, don't drink. But that's what you continue to hear continually. Then, in many places, I'm afraid to say, there's denigration, where the people are insulted, they're made to clean toilets, it's like an army boot camp. There's sort of the idea that you have to break the spirit of the alcoholic. I don't know the reason for it, but it is a common practice, carrying a bag of sand to the top of the hill and back down again. Then, if those things don't work, there's thysulfram, in which uh, if you do drink, then you may actually die from it, or at least feel like you're going to. Wow. After you've gone through all of this, there's a final D, and that's three years from now, you're probably going to have to do it all again, because this is a revolving door. You're going to have to make the same decision again as to whether you want to go through a detail, delay, detox, detain, don't drink, denigrate, and that's offering. All of that, of course, is costing a lot of dollars. Now, when you're using extinction, in the first place, this can be used as a means of prevention. It is for anybody who wants control, so you don't need to admit you're an alcoholic. You just want to have more control over your drinking. It's completely outpatient, so there's no delay. There's no detoxification. Actually, this is a form of detoxification. Uh, over the three months, uh, your drinking gradually goes down, and at the end of that time, you're no longer physiologically dependent. But you did it without having to take any addictive drugs and without any danger of dying from it, and without brain damage. But that's the rapid uh, stopping is one of the things that causes brain cells to uh, die out. And mm. instead of being told don't drink, you're told to drink as much as you want to. But the thing that is different is that eventually you don't want to, or you don't want to drink as much. One of the rules with anybody who's working with me in this is no denigration. You don't need to use it. Then we've done a three-year follow-up study on this, and we find that for the patients who are still using the naltrexone, this is about half of them at three years, that they're doing fine, that there is no revolving door that they are down to usually drinking about once a week, finish standard, and the most they're drinking is maybe on the average of one and a half drinks on the day that they're drinking. So hmm. it has a long-term, in fact, permanent uh, effect. Wow. Sounds like something that people are going to want to know about. What obstacles well, have you run? I hope that we can get the message out more in America. I've been talking at universities there and hospitals. There are some clinics that are using it in Florida and Boston. Uh, talking in IAAA in Washington. I think the experts in the field do understand it by now, but it hasn't gotten to the doctors, the clinicians who are doing the treatment yet. So there's a lot of work left to be done in order to bring it up to the level it's being used in Finland even. So what kind of obstacles have you run into in terms of of its adoption. One of the problems is simply the infrastructure which is in place. I gave a talk to a hospital, a detoxification hospital in Virginia. A very nice reception, the doctors there and other people, they understood what I was saying, it made sense, they agreed with everything there, but what about their jobs? They are getting paid by an insurance company for every detoxification that they do. And I'm saying you don't need to do detoxification. It is an wow. inpatient treatment place. What can they do? This is an outpatient thing. The system of payment for it needs to be changed. You need to have people coming in who do not have a vested interest in keeping the old system going. Uh, for example, uh, we've had rather good luck in Israel. The first clinic that was started was there, and I gave some lectures. But a lot of the reason is that they don't have any infrastructure. They have like three beds in the entire country for treating alcoholism, so there isn't anything to tear down in order to build this up. The manual that we had for the clinics was translated into Hebrew and is being used by the public health service there. 
I'd like to get the World Health Organization interested in this. We've been talking with them, and they would like to have something to use in third world countries that don't have a lot of money, but would like to do something about the alcoholism problems. Mm -hmm. They don't want to build hospitals. They can't afford to. Right. But they could afford to give naltrexone. Okay, that's really some interesting news. Thank you for the interview, and have a good day. Thank you. What do we teach our children? Reading, writing, and arithmetic? The history written by the victors? The science approved by the school board? How to take tests? Our methods of testing all by themselves have some ominous implications. When our tests have only one right answer, people start to think that life itself has only one right answer. The gray areas get derided as indecisive, disruptive, or the wrong message. What it comes down to is that we insist on teaching our children what to think instead of how to think. But what could we do about this? Study skills could be taught as a subject in first grade instead of assuming it to be a natural byproduct of homework. Logic could be taught alongside basic mathematics. History could be used to teach critical analysis of events instead of just being a list of names and dates. If we taught our children these things early, then our adults would find logical thinking more natural. Perhaps then they could tell the difference between information and advertisement, between network news and propaganda, between the helpful and the misleading. Perhaps they could settle their differences over conference tables instead of battlefields. The problem with this, of course, is if we teach them how to think, they might not think the same things we do, and that would be horrible. If you look closely at this idea, it assumes that someone who can think logically won't come to the same conclusions that we do. So tell me, what does this say about our conclusions? back to Intellectual Icebergs. I am your hopefully last time part-time host today. Jim promises us he'll be back next time. And today I am interviewing Rob about partiology. Hi there. Partiology, not cardiology. Partiology. Yes. So Rob, before we begin, we've thrown a lot of parties together, but why don't you tell people why you're qualified to talk about partiology? What it really comes down to is that I've been studying how to throw the perfect party for a good 20, 25 years now. This involves having run several conventions and attended a lot of other people's parties to try and figure out what combination of elements result in the most entertaining party. That's pretty much it. Okay. Well, so then let's start out. Define the word for us. What do you mean by partiology? Sure. Partiology as I define it is the science and or art of improving social interaction at gatherings. And when I mean improving, I mean both quantity and quality. It doesn't matter if everybody's talking, if everybody's being annoyed at each other. This generally applies to gatherings of all sizes, whether it's just a few people going back to your house after hanging out at the bar or huge, massive conventions. The dynamics are significantly different, but the elements behind them are essentially the same. What we're going to talk about in this segment specifically applies to those events which have enough people to create a chaotic situation are held in a space-limited environment like somebody's house or in a large ballroom and don't have a central attraction like a meal or a football game or a video marathon or something like that, which tend to give structure to an event without any actual effort on the people's part. Okay, so we're talking about parties that are probably at a person's house, perhaps also at a convention in a hotel room, that right. kind of thing. 
And one of the things you said, I want to back up for just a minute. You said creating a chaotic situation, and I'm so not into chaos at our house, so why don't you explain what you mean by that? Sure. A chaotic situation is is a situation that does not have any defining rules. Basically, a large number of things could happen because there's nothing in particular that the people are supposed to be doing, and the number of possible interactions that can occur is extremely high because of the number of people that can interact. For each person at a party that can interact with another person, it increases the number of types of interactions that can exist by the number of people that exist at the party. So this tends to snowball so that when you have a really large number of people, like 40 or 50 or 80 then it creates a situation of extreme unpredictability. Basically, you just have no clue what's going to happen, as long as there isn't something that defines what's going to happen. So we're kind of talking about greatly increasing the possibility for different types of interpersonal interactions. Who will interact with whom and what they'll talk about. Right, exactly. Okay, great. So what makes a good party? Well, there are three elements that are most important in creating the environment for a good party to happen in space, atmosphere, and refreshments. Space involves how the party is laid out, where the furniture is, where the food is, how far away some parts of the party are from other parts of the party, that type of thing. A bad layout of space makes the partiers kind of feel awkward, so if it's laid out more naturally, then they tend to flow from one topic or one conversation to another without any effort on their part, and that's what you're really shooting for. Atmosphere provides energy and motivation and, in some cases, direction for them to interact in. And refreshments basically prevent the people from getting hungry or tired or bored while the party's going on. This is especially important for longer parties because the correct type of refreshments improve people's endurance. Okay, that makes sense. Well, let's start with space, because we've thrown parties in big spaces and small spaces. What, what matters when it comes to space? Probably the most important thing is that the space be an appropriate size for the number of people you're going to have at the party, or that you have it properly cascaded so that people will start in a particular place and then slowly flow out to other spaces as people are added. That is actually the most optimal situation. That way people don't wind up spread out over a large area and not have the opportunity to interact with other people, but they're not all clumped together in an uncomfortable situation where there's nowhere to sit and you wander from room to room just looking for somewhere to relax for a few seconds. A lot of placement of furniture involves feng shui. Now, feng shui has a lot of culturally specific nonsense to it, but one thing that it definitely got right was spaces and use of furniture to divide spaces up into psychologically coherent units. What you really want to do to increase conversation in an area is have it consist of spaces no more than about 10 feet in diameter. Because in sociology, there's this thing that's kind of like a hailing distance. That's the maximum distance you want to talk to someone without feeling you're yelling across the room. And there's a minimum distance, which is personal space, where you feel like you're spitting in the other person's face talking at that closeness. 10 feet is roughly maximum hailing distance in most circumstances. If it's greater than that, then you're basically addressing a crowd or yelling, and people don't like that. So you want to create, with your furniture, circles of no more than 10 feet in diameter. And this generally accommodates about 8 to 10 people, and it's good to have spaces of varying sizes so that you have a space where four people can talk, where a couple can go hide in a corner, where a big group can chatter amongst themselves, that type of thing. If you have physical rooms that are too large for that, you don't want to try and make one big space of it. You want to use the furniture to actually break it up into smaller spaces. One thing that's really common is that if you have an extra long couch, you'll notice that spaces will form around both of the ends of the couch as opposed to in the middle of the couch because the length is just too long for one coherent space. Well, and I can attest to the fact that when we used to throw parties that were out in the yard at the small house that we lived in, I would try to make a circular area of all of our lawn furniture. And if I did it too close to party time and you didn't have time to stop me, what I found is first, people wouldn't sit there. 
And second, later, as it got much later, people would start to move the chairs, and they would create what you were just talking about. Right, and that phenomena also occurs at weddings and receptions that occur in a large banquet hall. Once people start actually milling around and becoming chaotic, they'll move the chairs into these circles so that they can converse. Makes sense. Another interesting point is something that I refer to as nucleation points. Now, in chemistry, a nucleation point is a deformation in the environment that's necessary for a particular chemical reaction to occur. For instance, you need dust in the atmosphere for water to condense into raindrops. And for instance, you need little irregularities in the side of a glass for bubbles to form in a carbonated soda. You'll notice that they keep forming in the exact same spaces. Those irregularities are referred to as nucleation points. At parties, nucleation points are anything around which people will gather and converse. This can be a food tray, it can be an ashtray, it can be a deck of cards. Ashtrays are particularly good if you want people to hang out outside and talk. But if it's a place to accumulate, then people will accumulate and chatter. One of the things that most people do wrong when they throw a party is that they put all of their food trays in one place, in the kitchen, in the dining room, whatever... But that becomes one big congested nucleation point, and everybody's all packed in the same place. You want to spread the nucleation points out around the party so that people don't get all stuck in one place. Also, you can use nucleation points to essentially spread the party out more effectively. Put a food tray off in one corner that people generally don't stand in, and they'll go stand there because, well, there's food there. Now, one caveat with nucleation points is that there are certain things like computers or televisions or the music collection that can be nucleation points that can cause problems. Televisions, if they're on normal television or playing a movie, tend to completely kill all interaction that's going around it because everybody just stands there and watches the TV. Music collections can cause arguments and can cause the exactly the wrong people to try and put on their personal favorite music. And computers are a one-person thing. People will tend to gather around and look over the person's shoulder, but you've got one person not interacting and other people standing around them not interacting. You don't want to do anything that's going to decrease interaction like this. Now, televisions can be used to increase interaction. For instance, if you're playing... Winamp has their wonderful visualization studio. If you play that on your TV as the visualization to whatever music you're playing, then it tends to increase conversation, and that's a good thing. But for the most part, you have to be very careful with what you're doing with a television. So nucleation points and maximum distances, hailing distances and sizes, and people thought you couldn't get scientific about party throwing. Well, yeah, there's a certain amount of science to it. There's a certain amount of art to it. That's why I really couldn't specify what it was at the beginning. All right. Well, let's talk about the atmosphere next. How do we improve our parties through atmosphere? Okay. As I mentioned at the beginning, the purpose of atmosphere is to get people in the mood to party. More energetic, more receptive, more active in general. This means they're more likely to initiate social interaction, and they're more receptive when other people try to initiate it, and that helps a lot. It also makes them more curious, and sometimes it makes them very showy, which, again, is always a lot of fun at parties. So, the first thing that seriously affects mood, and I can't stress this enough, is music. Every party should have music. Folks, if you're throwing a party and you don't have music, there's a problem here. Now, I'm not going to talk about genre or style of music, because for the most part, every genre is equally appropriate or inappropriate, just depending on who you invite. You should figure out who your audience is and tailor your musical selection to that audience. A good way to go about this is to actually encourage your guests to suggest music for the party. But you should be very careful about who you allow to DJ. One of the really unfortunate things about music is that those who have the strongest opinions about things also tend to be the one with the most narrow tastes. So you wind up with several hours of some band you never heard of because that person thinks that they're the greatest thing since sliced bread. Well, and this would be a perfect argument for Winamp or for some other program that allows you to provide a playlist that you then break anyone's figures if they touch it. Oh, absolutely. Winamp is an awesome party tool because you can take your entire collection or just the pieces you want and put them on your hard drive and just play the songs in the specific order that you set aside at the beginning of the party, and it's your DJ. You don't need to do anything else. It's beautiful. What other musical considerations are there? Well, one of the things you should do when trying to select party music is identify the tempo. 
tempo is like beats per minute or whatever. And a known biological fact is that our heart tends to actually try and synchronize itself with the tempo of whatever music we're listening to. This is why slow music tends to relax us and fast music tends to excite us. Really, what you want to do is you want to get music somewhere in the 60 to 80 beats per minute range. After you get above 80, then it tends to exhaust people quickly, and, and exhausted people make poor partiers. You should occasionally intersperse slower songs with this, so that people have time to relax and shift mental gears and whatnot, but for the most part, most of the stuff should be fairly high energy. Another thing that you need to consider is volume. Volume is very important. There are three types of volumes for music at a party. Background, appreciable, and deafening. I'm sure we've all walked into parties where the music everywhere was, where was deafening and maybe got very aggravated because you can't talk to anybody when the music is deafening. Well, parties or bars or whatever. Or whatever, yeah. And bars are really just an attempt to create a party so that you can sell alcohol. Now, background music is what you're mostly shooting for because it gives people the best opportunity to converse. It injects energy, it encourages conversation, but doesn't drown it out. And if you happen to have multiple stereo systems, you can put a different type of background music in each of your rooms if you want to, if you happen to have a lot of rooms. The next level up is appreciable. Appreciable is good if you've got a decent stereo and you've got music people want to listen to, or if you've got a room that's a dance floor, and then people want to go out there and they want to shake their stuff and they want to have fun doing that, but they're not having conversation out there. In fact, if you actually have a dance floor, if you can place it central to the house, then all of the spaces around it will have background music and you get all of that functionality out with one decent stereo. Now, the third category of music does have its uses. Some people really like their music to be so loud that they can feel the bass in their bones and they can hear every little squeal of the electric guitar. But you got to remember that everybody doesn't like it that way. In fact, most people don't. Deafening music tends to be a full-body experience, and it really does deafen you not just while you're there, but also wrecks your hearing for the rest of the party, so that even background music tends to prevent you from being able to have conversation. If you want to have deafening music, be sure to have it in a specific place with decent isolation from the rest of the party so that people can choose whether or not they're going to be in the deafening music room. And to prove that we're not old fogies, we did border on deafening when we had the live band play at our house. Oh, we did. That was one of those situations where people showed up with kids and they had to leave the party because there was no place for their kids to get away from the music. On the other hand, other people were delighted Absolutely. that we had this deafening live band. Absolutely. It was a lot of fun. That was probably one of the best parties we've ever thrown. But we did have to make them stop, too, at a reasonable hour. And that's something else, is that deafening music tends to infringe upon noise ordinances, and having the cops knock on your door is never a good thing for a party. Buzzkill. I, I do know some people who actually shoot for that. They, they <laughs> say, yeah, man, we threw this great party. We had five cop cars out front. <laughs> but for the most part, it tends to end the party quickly. It chases some people away, at, at the very least. Now, similar to music selection... You should be very careful about who you let near the volume knob because those who are most likely to adjust the volume knob without asking you are also the ones who are most likely to turn it up. If people want to turn it down, they'll generally go find the host and ask them. And a lot of people don't realize how much of a conversation killer loud music can be. So what else? What beside music? There's There has to be more to atmosphere than that. Well, sure. There's decorations. Decorations tend to turn a familiar space into a space that needs to be explored, and it's always fun to put some kind of unexpected decoration in some cranny to make it interesting. I really like it when people who have vaulted ceilings hang something huge like a dragon or a giant ghost or a big spider from it. It really makes a party more interesting that way. And that you should particularly pay attention to decorations on holiday events like Christmas or Halloween or for events that need a specific flavor like a bachelor or bachelorette party. Now, I would be completely remiss in talking about atmosphere at a party without talking about mood-altering substances. Now, we're talking about alcohol, caffeine, and nicotine on the legal side and a variety of libations on the illegal side. Alcohol is a social lubricant. It makes us less annoyed at each other's rough edges. It makes us rub against each other wrong less often. 
It's especially important at parties where not a lot of people know each other. It causes people less resistance when they want to go talk to someone new. Caffeine obviously provides energy. This is especially important for the really long parties. Improves people's endurance in the long term. And of course now we have the drinks that we can buy pre-made that are caffeinated alcoholic beverages. That's right. What a perfect combination. (laughs) Now nicotine in a small doses is a stimulant and at large doses is a sedative. This is actually particularly useful for people who smoke because it gives them a sense of mental fluidity where they can talk on a subject without getting tripped up by their own ideas. And let's face it, there's some people who just can't live for a full four-hour period without pulling out a cigarette. Now, it's not necessary to supply libations. It's usually a draw for a party to actually have, for instance, an open bar and tubs full of soda. But it works just as well to have your friends bring their own and whatnot, as long as you announce it in advance and let everybody know. But you do need to supply facilities for people to actually do these types of things in. Having tubs of ice, even if you don't have tubs of soda, having coolers for people to put their beer and soda into is a necessary concept. Otherwise, you wind up with an excessively stocked fridge or, even worse, warm beer. Having ashtrays in the locations that are appropriate for people to smoke in is also a necessity. Also, as mentioned previously, these make excellent nucleation points. Put a few chairs around them and you've got a conversation pit. Now, I need to say outright, we don't condone or suggest the use of legally unapproved substances. But providing space for people to engage in those activities is often a social necessity. Otherwise, you wind up with insufflating chatterboxes taking up your bathroom for 15, 20 minutes at a time. And if you've ever been in a party where people won't get out of the bathroom, you know what a problem this is. This is very problematic when your guests leave because they can't pee. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And it keeps alternative smokers from doing so in places where people who might be offended by such things might see them doing it. Or that they might do it in a place where the neighbors might see it, and then again, you have a visit from Mr. Man in Blue. So just make a space for them, tell them where it is, and tell them if you're going to do that, do it there. And of course you do have the option of not allowing anybody to do this on your premises. Of course you do. Absolutely. But if you have any indication that they might do it... That's right. Then you're saying in those cases, provide for it. So what else? I think the only thing we haven't talked about so far out of the list you gave us was refreshments. So tell me about refreshments. Sure. Alcohol and caffeine and stuff like that really does border on refreshments, so we may as well hop into that. It's mostly about keeping your guests from being distracted by hunger and thirst while they're actually partying. You don't want them leaving because they have to go get a bite to eat or they haven't had a drink in hours. And also, as mentioned in the environment, it can contribute significantly to the mood of the party. Anybody who's ever had a party with beer at it knows that when the beer runs out, people go somewhere else. Which, of course, is a way to end a party that you're sick of. Well, this is true. This this has been (laughs) You want to end the party, run out of beer. Yeah, or turn the stereo off. True. Turn the lights on. Right. Now, food... The choices in food obviously run contrary to proper nutrition. While excessive sweets are still out... They provide short-term energy boost, but then you get the sugar crash, and on top of that, it interacts poorly with alcohol. So what you really want to shoot for is carbohydrates in proliferation, cookies, chips, pretzels, cake, whatever, because they provide good party-spanning energy and tend to coat the stomach so that drinking doesn't upset your stomach nearly as much. Fats are also wonderful. I'm a cheeseaholic. And you'll always see me near the cheese tray, but that's one of the things that tends to go quickly also. It's an effective energizer, and fats make people more comfortable. And when people are more comfortable, they interact more and more interestingly. Proteins are also good, especially since some people have this nasty habit of showing up to a party without having eaten, especially the women who are trying to fit into their slinky, teeny tiny dress. And you wouldn't want to discourage them from doing that. But then they show up and they're starving, and there's those wonderful cocktail weenies. Now, veggies are something you can take or not. They're cheap, they're convenient, they give people something to crunch on. They actually tend to be more chew toys than actual food substances, but they do go well with cheese. And your health-conscious guests will love it, and your dieting guests. And for those of you who think it may be a myth, celery really does have negative calories. (laughs) So where do I put all this food? Well, as mentioned before, food is a nucleation point. People will stand around food and chatter. So you put some here and you put some there. 
you don't want to try and put all of the meats in one place and all the vegetables in another place. You want to just put some of everything in each place as much as is practical. Obviously, if you're having ice cream, you don't want to put an ice cream machine at every nucleation point. But having a mixed tray of meats and cheeses and crackers is a good thing to put in various points of your party. So smaller bowls and platters and mix it up. That's right. Also, you don't really want to put food in the center of a large nucleation circle because people feel like they're being pigs if they're the only one picking off the tray. They also feel like they're interrupting whoever's talking. So you want to actually put them on the edges of those big circles. And another concept that you really need to pay attention to is trash cans. Trash cans, recycle bins, places to dispose of the plates, the beer bottles, the beer bottle caps, soda cans, all of these things. If people are wandering around your party trying to figure out where to put the trash, this is a problem. You want to put enough cans in various places that people don't have to search very hard to find them, and you don't have to empty them in the middle of a party, because that's also very distracting to you and everyone else. Although, you could argue that that is an excellent task to perform for those guests who insist that they must be doing something. There are always those guests who come and they, they are busybodies. Can I help out? Can I do something? What can I do? Which is fantastic, so let them take the trash out. By all means, let them point people to the recycling bin. But a better job for that type of person is helping prepare food. Well, that's true if they show up early enough. That's right. Or if they show up at a time when you're getting ready to send out the next wave. That's right. Even in the middle of the party, having the fry daddy and having them tend to making crab cheese wontons Or if you've got someone who can do sushi and wants to help. Oh my God, that's such a wonderful thing to watch. Oh, that is. That is. We've we've had a number of parties where we have sushi preparation, live sushi preparation, and it is amazing how much people get into making it and how much other people get into watching. Yeah, and then of course everybody eats it because sushi's yummy. And speak to that point briefly, since we were talking about food, the point that you don't put all the food out up front. Right. This is another important concept. If you roll out food in stages, then the next rollout of food, if it's something new and interesting, livens up the party some more. In one particular party we threw, we actually pulled out a new gourmet dish every half hour. We were insane. We were insane. But people are still talking about that party. Oh yeah, that was one of those that hit the books. Yeah, that's a lot of good information about creating an environment, but there's one other key ingredient to this, and that's who do I invite? Well, yes, that does have a lot to do with it. You can have a beautiful, amazing environment, but if you don't invite the right people, it's just going to be monkeys and tuxes and everything's going to be a mess and no one's going to want to talk to anybody. So what you need to do is you need to figure out who to invite. There are five groups of people who you want to invite people from. First group is your friends. Obviously, you want to invite your friends. Sometimes you want to invite all of your friends. But you should be careful to invite those friends who are going to go better with the atmosphere of your party. Obviously, you don't want to invite your stodgy friends to a mad raucous thing unless you're trying to encourage the stodgy friends to either be more raucous or stop talking to you. And then there's a group called Friends of Friends. And this is actually a really good place to find new people to talk to. But you have to be careful because we all have friends who have friends who we just don't really want to get to know better. So what we often do is we will put on our invitations, please check with us before inviting people. And we see that commonly on invitations that we receive as well. Absolutely. That's a very common way of doing it. It's a very polite way of saying that we really want to meet new people, but please express taste. We want to reference about this person first. That's right. And then there's acquaintances, and it's a really good opportunity, parties are, to get to know people better when you want to get to know them better. Just invite them to the party and watch them interact and get an opportunity to interact with them. New neighbors can fall into this category. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then there's co-workers. Co-workers you have to be really careful with. You don't want to invite the whole department unless you want to throw a company-appropriate party, which is not always a whole lot of fun. But if your co-workers happen to be good friends, oh, of course, then they fall into the friends category. Just invite them along. It's also a good opportunity to have co-workers who are acquaintances come over so that you can get to know them better. Now, the fifth category is kind of interesting. It's perfect strangers. Generally speaking, if a person's a perfect stranger, you can't invite them until you at least make them into acquaintances. But there are certain categories of perfect strangers who you really want to make acquaintance with so that you can invite them. For instance, cute chicks. 
one of those odd quirks of human behavior that having cute women at parties causes many of the men to act in entertaining ways that they normally wouldn't. These odd behaviors improve the enjoyment of everyone else, thus improving the quality of the party, blah, 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 blah. But generally speaking, a party with lots of cute women tends to be a better party, and I'm not going to bother trying to explain that if you don't know how it works yourself. Although that said, from from cute chick perspective and, and person who has cute chick friends, it is still true that you probably will have to make acquaintance with them before they will come to the party, because it is a, a semi-risky thing. Hi, you're cute. You want to go to the party? No, that doesn't work. One way to get around this, and bring your cute friends. And bring your cute friends. Of course, you don't have to say cute, but girls, if they feel like they can bring their friends, somebody's got their back, somebody knows where they are, and it's more fun with a friend. If it sucks, they can go somewhere else with their friends. Right, but it is a good idea to get to know the person and talk with them so that even if they're cute, if they show up to your party and they happen to be psycho-raving lunatics of some form or another, that's probably bad, so you do just want to kind of screen them a little first. Though admittedly, by far the greater risk is to the cute chick than to the host. Certainly, and you want to give them an opportunity to realize that you're not a psycho-raving lunatic. Now, when you're inviting people, it's usually good to try and get a mix of half-people who you know and half people who you don't know. The very best party is the type of party where every single person at your party knows exactly half of the people at the party, and for each person, it's a different half. Obviously, if you invite all of your coworkers and your wife invites all of her co-workers, you're running into a situation where half of the people don't know the other half of the people, but since it's always the same half for most of the people, they tend to group up into this group on that side of the room and that group on the other side of the room, and that does not cause good interaction. And they never mix. You get the oil and water effect. Yeah. So you want to create a situation where, for most people, if they don't know someone, there's someone that they do know who does know that someone. So basically, people need to draw diagrams of all their friends and who knows who. And Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I do know some people who actually keep those diagrams in their head. Yeah, I, I do keep that diagram in my head. Yeah. And just don't draw it out. Just don't draw it out. But it does make for a better party if you can set up that situation. It's really a good thing if you can walk boldly into going and talking to people who you don't know with friends at your back. Makes a lot of sense. Excellent. Why don't you summarize this for us? Why don't you give our listener, say, five points? What can they do, quick and dirty, to throw a better party this holiday season? Oh, sure. Study feng shui, play nice music, not too loudly. Bring beer, serve chips and dips, and invite cute chicks. Now, the funny thing is that this is exactly the type of formula that you tend to hear on a beer commercial, but there really is a lot of logical reasons behind each point, except for feng shui. That one you kind of have to figure out the hard way. Uh, It's pretty logical, too. There there are some definable rules, some some predefined rules that you can look at. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Rob, cardiology expert, thanks for your time today. Well, thank you. Hi there, and welcome to the chatter section. My God, that was a long one. Uh, that was our epic podcast. What the hell were we thinking? I, I think that's the problem, is that we weren't thinking. I've always had the philosophy that you shouldn't trim something down to try and fit it in, because it's not like we've got a time slot to fit in, but this kind of sort of went a little bit overboard. Yeah, so we apologize, not in advance, but after the fact. After the fact. Sorry! Sorry. Skype interview was interesting. It was a little bit of effort to get it and Pamela all set up so that we could actually have that interview go through. And then afterwards, I discovered that any time I had clipped during the interview, for some reason or another, it recorded it as zero. So it'd go all the way up and then shoot straight down for a few blocks and then go back up again, which sounded like, or something like that on the thing, which was annoying. Oh, so you were speaking like an aborigine. Yeah, something like that. Cool. Yeah, so I I had to actually zoom it in all the way down to the single sample size and delete the individual samples that were zeros for some reason. It was annoying. That's a pain in the ass. Of course, they have no idea what kind of editing we go through with this show. No, that's true. So that was super extra painful editing. That was was extra super painful editing. Well, and plus Pamela hates Gamer. 
hates the gaming machine. Definitely does or that. Or gamer hates Pamela or whatever, but after many reboots and whatnot, yeah, gamer is finally playing sounds again. We finally had to give up trying to install Pamela on one of our machines because it just axed our sound card. It doesn't work. Overall, it was not bad. I think the very worst thing was that we had to make do with whatever microphone our guest had over on his side. Since he's in Finland, it wasn't like we could walk one of these over to him. Right. But it was a whole lot better than trying to make a phone call. His was pretty good, though. It sounded pretty clear. Although then when you pass it through the recording and then you lay the music underneath it and yeah. blah, blah, blah. We did have some feedback that it's sometimes difficult to hear what the people are saying against the music. And one guy in particular was saying he even backs up and listens again, which, my God, thank you that you care enough to do that is awesome. Yeah, we are so sorry that that's necessary. It is. So we're working on that. And in particular with the Skype interview, we really tried to tone the music down. You'll probably notice that with Partiology this time as well. Yeah, I hope it's all audible for you. Yeah, but hey, if it's not, you know who to complain to. You listen. That's right. On the alcohol thing, I honestly think that if that's what I think it is, it's going to do to alcoholism what penicillin did to bacterial infections. It's just really amazing. Just wanted to say that. that We talked for, what, 23 minutes on it? I guess that wasn't enough. But that's all I wanted to say. Well, you finally got to express your opinion. That's right. So we gave away a lot of brains this month. Yep, we did. A hello to, who is this, Dave, John, Lord Wallace. Yes, we sent a brain to England. It's so cool, and it's cheap. Beverly, Brian, and Jonathan, our brain artists. Our brain artist. And also, just today, to Arcanum. Arcanum and Dave are both from our villain group over on the, on the City, City of Villains. villains. Yeah. So, haha, all soon will be in ties. Or City of Villains, either way. <laughs> it's part of our evil plan. That's right. And speaking of brains, you guys, if you want your brain, you have got to send us your feedback because they're getting fuzzy. That's right. Not yeah. like, I mean, you don't want your your surrogate brain to be fuzzy, right? If we run out of all the rest, we're going to have to start sending out the cat toys, you know? I, I am seriously having to brush off the cat hair before I send brains in some cases. The kids are throwing them in the dog bed. The cat sleeps in the dog. It's just bad. They're fuzzy. It's bad. Come on, you guys. I want to send you these brains, so... So on the subject of brains, I really wanted the brain song from Voltaire to play in the background when we announce who gets the brains. But we can't get that one. And I probably couldn't get if I only had a brain because I'm sure... OMGMs. Yeah. Got that forever. Yeah. Anyway, I don't like that song. But if you happen to be an artist out there who would really like your music played on intellectual icebergs, then please, write us a brain song. Write us a brain song. And and it may sound, to some of you who are not musicians, this may sound completely psychotic that would even we would even ask, but we have had several artists say, hey, if you ever need custom music, I can write it. So I need to look those guys up. Yeah, and if we can provide inspiration for people, then cool. <laughs> That's right. That's awesome. Send us brain songs. The only thing is it has to use the word brain yeah oh and it can't be country i'm sorry no oh, country i no, can't no do country it. and and no rap because that's not really music i don't know you know a rap a brain rap could actually be kind of cute i mean if you think like the rap duran duran did way back i mean yeah. so that was pretty cool yeah but the way we do right our policy is that we don't play anything that has vocals but and rap is all vocals but they've got to say brains so they've anyway brains. submit it to us come on we, we challenge you and and one other thing on the topic of brains i've actually added this to the forum we're asking people to send us pictures of their brains in action brains in action brain action shots we will put them on the website as long as they're not you know lewd lewd yeah I mean, they could be mildly lewd, but for instance, some of the ideas that I had for brains were very lewd, and, and Rob says, no, we can take those pictures, but we're not putting them on the website. So so you can send us those pictures, and we will enjoy it immensely, but we, we can't post, post the no. lewd. No, we're a no. family show. We're a family show. <laughs> More or At least less. someone's family. Anyway. Someone's family. What else have we got? Uh, well, our good buddy Jim seems to be only sporadically available these days. He does say he's coming back. He's, he's going to make a very strong effort to be here for the end of December show. But? But? Since he hasn't been able to make it for a few of the shows in the past, we kind of presume that he won't be able to make it for some shows in the future. So, if you happen to be in Colorado and you think that you would make an interesting host for our show, drop us a line. We'll give you a run. Yep, definitely. We're not looking for a replacement for Jim, mind you. We're looking for supplemental hosts. Because... Right. Y'all have got to be sick of listening to us talk by now, and we're sure sick of hearing ourselves. So let's give this audience something worthy. Right. Somebody different. 
Also, I would like to talk about my favorite music cast out there. No, it's not my show. Definitely not my show. It's Industrial Radio. John from Hi, Industrial Radio. John. John from Industrial Radio is awesome. You must hear his show. This is the best podcast out there. He plays some of the soft industrial, some of the harder industrial. He has a great relationship with the band Collide, so he plays a lot of their stuff. This is just an awesome, awesome, awesome show. So you guys go out there, listen to it. If you like what you hear, vote him up. We're trying to make him number two. You want to know why number two and not number one? Go listen to his show. Right. Figure it out. So John actually plugged our shows a couple weeks ago on his show, which just totally, totally made our week. So we are thankful, but I wouldn't plug his show if it wasn't fantastic. And it is. So have a listen. We'd also like to say hello to all of the Denver area podcasters out there on Meetup. We just joined the Denver area Meetup podcasters. Hi, guys. Hey, guys. We haven't actually met anybody from the group yet, but we did join the group. Yeah, if you happen to be a podcaster and you're in the Denver area, then go ahead to, what is it, podcasters.meetup.com? Yeah, go out to Meetup meetup.com and then search under podcasting and then you can search geographically right and you can find there's one in denver they're trying to put one together in boulder it looks like pretty much everybody in colorado is in the denver one right now i think they have 26 members counting us but it's pretty cool you can put your podcast out there on this little map which is so cute and see all the podcasts in Colorado. All right. Well, I think that's about it for now. We've, we're probably over an hour on our podcast now, so we're just going to shut up. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Initiating shutdown sequence. Intellectual Icebergs is produced by Robert and Tiffany Raplin. If you enjoy our show, please vote for us on Podcast Alley, Podcast Pickle, and Digital Podcasting. The music for the intro and credits is Speaking in Electronic Tongues by Synthetic Movements. The music for the first segment is Water Pistols at 10 Paces by Alfonso Nidget. The music for the interlude is Rain Clouds of Thought, Parts 1 and 2 by Mr. S. The music for the second segment is Jimmy by Robert Dubwise. The makers of Intellectual Icebergs would like to remind you to always make new mistakes. Please visit us at www.intellectualicebergs.org. Intellectual Icebergs is released under a Creative Commons license and is an Onk Infinity production.